Welcome, listeners, for another episode of Big Talk. I am your guest host, Alex Ashkin. I am joined today by Jeff Lefebvre, former HT journalist. He has worked as an adjunct instructor at IU. He is a blogger, sports fan, avid wrestling fan, and always lets people know when it's Wednesday. Jeff, how's your evening going? Alex, is a very warm welcome. I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Um, I've worn a lot of hats here in Bloomington, and I really appreciate you giving the folks a history. It's, uh, it's weird to hear so many different labels apply, but I'm just happy being me. Bloomington's sort of great for that because we let people sort of go and do what they want to do. First and foremost, Jeff, you worked as a Herald Times reporter from 2014 to 2018. You've worked as like sort of a culture, local news reporter, but also operated the tip hotline. Yeah, I had this beat position at the newspaper. It was the position offered to me from the very get-go. So it's the position I will probably always hold dearest. Uh, but I was this guy called the hotline columnist. and It was kind of a a turnstile position where a lot of people held it, uh, but effectively back in the day, and I hate saying back in the day, but if something big happened pre-Twitter and the newspaper only comes out twice a day, think about that, mm-hmm. uh, the best way to learn something as it was happening was call the newspaper and see what's going on. And it was a reporter's job to A, find out the answer, and B, while we have the answer, let's put the question and answer in print so folks know exactly what's going on on the hotline. And that was a position that evolved because eventually uh, emails got included as an outlet, social media got included as an outlet. But that was such a fun job to have because not only was I writing in a way a column where I could put a little sort of flourish in people's lives, it was frequently, I was told, the place people went when they started drinking their coffee. They either go to the back page for the sports sections or the hotline and just learn a little something about the world going on. Hey, what's happening in that old Kmart building? Mm-hmm. We got a scoop. And it's stuff like that that was really fun to do at the Herald Times. And since then, you've gone on to do some marketing work. You served as an adjunct instructor at IU. Yeah, I'll just kind of give you like the big overarching narrative is that like I've always loved writing. Mm-hmm. I've always loved storytelling. I went to school at the School of Journalism, now kind of within the media school at Indiana University. And I've always loved storytelling and writing, whether I worked for a newspaper, I ended up working for a downtown K-12 educational consultant company and really got the word out about teachers that were working hard to improve lives of students. And, you know, COVID kind of shook a lot of things up, not just for me, but I'm sure a lot of people in terms of what they were doing and what they were used to doing. Uh, I was offered a position to teach literary journalism and then feature writing, which are kind of one and the same, through the media school at Indiana University. And the best way I can describe that is really just standard news telling with all the good things you find in books. Talking about flourishing writing and metaphor and irony and structure, you know, the things that really put the juice in the meat. And uh, I taught there uh, at IU for about three semesters. I would happily do it again. I'm not slated to this fall. But being able to create stories first off is such a privilege as a profession. And then having the sort of experience or position to find young people that are also excited and finding out what's going on around them 
and give them an open platform, kind of an empty canvas to say, hey, here's a life experience we should figure out. You've had a great position to sort of cover broad swath of things in your time as a writer. And now you're doing your blog, Moose on the Loose, that is hyphenated, by the way. What I love about your current writing is it's almost a little bit of between your own personal musings and also just the funny little anecdotes that like brighten your day. Can I say that I got a good kick out of the soda comparison column and all the rankings as as well as the slight skewering of the New York Times dirty Shirley Temple idea. Like I I get it. A little salty sweet. I love a Shirley Temple too, but come on, really? Like pickle juice? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'll put it this way. It's uh, my whole ethos with writing started when I was a teenager. And you know, I got to tell people this is like even before MySpace really took off. The reason I wanted to write is just to get these thoughts out of my head that were haunting me at night. And I don't think a lot of people like to I don't know, address it so candidly, but these really ornate, verbose thoughts we have about life that can come across as dense or deep, they're just as valid as going to the Circle K and finding out that seven out of the 14 options are broken, and you just (laughs) got to deal with it that day. So I, you know, last summer I did a big travel experiment, I wrote about it, and it cost a good bit of money, and I drove 3,000 miles, and that was really good as kind of a high concept thing. But this last summer I did the Moose on the Juice where uh, I just basically reviewed as many sodas as I could from the local gas station, and it was really worth it just for the sake of it. I was told uh, in an early journalism class, if you're there to witness it, it happened, but if you took notes, it's journalism. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what it is. It's like also science, breaking something and taking notes, but I just wanted to review sodas. And in a way, I, I always try and punch up, but I saw when I was creating this weird social experiment about trying all the different Mountain Dews at once that like the New York Times was like, we've named the Durley Shirley Temple the drink of the summer. And I'm like, okay, it's not that deep. I love Shirley Temples, but there's no plaque being given out here. Drink what you want on a given day. I guess with the writing ethos there is like there for so long, I had been writing whatever a beat or a desk had told me, but the liberation that comes with having your own writing outlet is so good because you're always in charge every day. There's something interesting about your writing that is obviously very self-reflective. And I think it also comes across as um, self-effacing in a very obvious sense. (laughs) Even when you started uh, Moose on the Juice, you kind of said like, hey, I've got friends covering wars and humanitarian events, and I'm writing about sodas. But you're going to be a good clown if you're going to be a clown. And I appreciate that because, like, not every film has to be an Oscar film. Some movies are just supposed to be fun. So in the same way with writing, do you think that in a certain sense, there's sort of like an existential animus in a sense for journalists where you're like, oh, man, I am going to expose the truth about this or I am going to, you know, change people's mind. I'm going to persuade people. I'm going to educate people and like animate them to change the world or speak truth to power or You know, uh, we're talking about sort of like, you know, existential animus and what exactly is a quality of a good movie. 
something my housemate Miranda and I have talked about this phrase that just came out of nowhere. The best art is sometimes just for the artist. And no matter what you do, of course, you know, you talk, you brought up that I have colleagues that are doing these really terrific things overseas, domestically, finding stark truths and bringing them to light. But I'm also a firm believer that whatever you do, wherever you're at, just do your best because you owe it to yourself. And writing about things like that, I don't know, it's just worth the process. And there are times where it's like, I shouldn't really be in this existential spot where all I have to write about is which is the best soda or whatever's going on. Uh, but that, you got to be honest. You know, it, no one likes a story that is under underdeveloped in terms of how cool it was. And no one likes a story that was overdeveloped in terms of how realistic it actually was. And so I just try and speak truth to this whole weird existence we're at, whether it's something big as a project I can tackle or just, hey, some days I just got to say what's on this mind. Just as putting a pin in this discussion, can you speak to the value and enjoyment of a Circle K sip and save card? Yeah, uh, this is not by any way promoted material. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, folks that are out there that are curious about, you know, advertising. But uh, I, I really enjoy the good old Midwestern art of taking advantage of a deal uh, and not to manipulate or abuse, but simply within the agreed contract terms. But the Circle K chain of gas stations, of which I live right next to one, uh, offer a $5.99 a month tip and save, where for that you can get basically anything that comes out of a tube and goes into a cup at Circle, at Circle K. And it was right there. So I just figured instead of spending $1.50 a day, I would spend $6 a month and really just get you know my juice out of it. It's sugar and water. What a concept. But it's really worth doing if just for the variety where, like, I had something to look forward to. And, you know, let's be candid. A lot of folks are still in this mindset and re realistically so that we're still in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It became too expensive to drive a lot of places. It became expensive to do a lot of things. And so it was like, hey, I got to get my sugar water and live a little today. Yeah, it creates a little bit of novelty in each morning or afternoon mm -hmm. whenever your preferred soda hour oh, is most times i went after midnight just whenever <laughs> it strikes you moving on to perhaps your most well-known piece there was a piece you published back in 2016 for the herald times titled a walk in my father's size 17 shoes and this was written on the eve of the 35-year celebration of iu's victory over the University of North Carolina Tar Heels in which they won the 1981 national championship. And actually your father, Mike Lefebvre, was a freshman on that team. Yeah. It was, first of all, an absolutely moving piece that is still archived throughout the internet. If you search the article title, you'll find it. Uh, but it's interesting because in your op-ed, you speak a little bit to how your father, in a certain way, had mere contributions to the Hoosier stat line, but a lot of it is actually more about the intangibles of his work, the fact that he was devoted as a teammate friend and like had this loving connection. And, you know, I even want to start a bit before. The fact of the matter is my father... Uh, and you talk about stats, he had 11 points over two years at Indiana University, and I think maybe like 13 minutes of playing time. 
in a way, as we call him in the modern era, he was a human victory cigar. You put him in, the game is over. Mm. Absolutely no way we're messing this up, uh, hopefully. Uh, but basically, I never found out, you know, you grow up in Indiana, especially during the 90s when basketball fever is probably at its highest point. My dad never told me he played basketball at the higher education level, let alone for Bob Knight, let alone win a championship. And I only found out one day when I was being a little nosy seven-year-old and I went to our family storage unit in the basement and found like this grand photograph of him at the free throw line. It was like Mike LaFave, All-Americans, Cena Memorial High School. And I'm like, what? Is that you? And he had just not told me. It wasn't a big deal to him because it was ultimately not about you know, whatever these modern experiences that come with being an athlete, stardom, success, winning, it wasn't really a factor for him. He was in high school. He was an All-Stater for Cecina Memorial, a highly touted recruit coming to Indiana University. Bob Knight sat down with my grandparents and convinced him or them together that they wouldn't necessarily win at Indiana University, but my father would become a man. And Lo and behold, they won the national championship, so you had mm. your cake and you ate it too. Uh, but as a lot of freshmen go, a lot of sophomores go, especially on an already star-laden team with like Isaiah Thomas, Landon Turner, Randy Whitman, not going to get a lot of playing time. And a lot of his, you know, kind of promises that were given to him in high school, and by no way were they betrayed, but the way you're talked to as a senior in high school versus the way you're treated as a freshman or sophomore on a college team, you immediately have to be humble again. And he was there for a lot. There was a really notorious plane ride when they went to play Pan American where everyone got the stomach flu. Bob Knight got really emotive and it seemed like the season was doomed. They had lost to the worst team in school history and lo and behold, they won the tournament. And something also particular about that day is uh, the 81 championship happened on the day Ronald Reagan was shot. And so like, yeah, the same day and both coaches, I think, you know, Indiana coach and North Carolina coach met before the game and said, do we cancel this? They found out that Reagan was going to be relatively okay. Reagan said, all things considered, I'd rather be in Philadelphia, which was a, a movie line nod, but also a nod to he'd rather see the championship game than be in the hospital tonight. So they played the game. Dad won the tourney. And at the end of the day, I mentioned Dad had 11 career points at IU. He transferred to Ball State his junior year and had marginal success there. But the NBA never came calling. European leagues never really had a lot of interest. And he took over the family business. I just knew him as Dad. But it was really the more I got to pry with him and spend time with him. Years after the fact, he was willing to talk to someone who wasn't there to see expectations in print, who wasn't there to say like, oh, that Lefave kid never lived up to his potential. He, you know, he left when he could. He found higher waters elsewhere. But the fact of the matter is I got a truly humane experience about what it's like to participate in sport and being part of a team and that ultimately your role is everything you can provide and that does not get reflected in box scores necessarily. What I absorbed from my father's basketball career a constantly shuffled bench riding four years met with missed expectations and a bittersweet championship run is that sports don't matter. People do. What matters most is how you treat those around you, the metal with which you approach a daunting situation and how you act in the face of adversity. 
His two years at IU instilled that in him. Character is what matters most, and no championship ring was built to contain that legacy. To what point do you think that a personal identity and narrative power grants to great writing? And how does your relationship with your father or really anything where we're very personal to any subject, where that can potentially create almost like a blind spot or a pitfall for writers when we're really close to something? Absolutely. That, that's a really good, you know, way to look at this. We're close to something, uh, you know, and I here I am doing the Midwest thing. Please, like, don't give me any praise. But I was met with a lot of compliments after the article. It's like, you really made us get to know your father. And I'm like, well, absolutely. I knew him for 18 years. Most things we write about, we maybe have 18 hours at most 18 days to really capture a story if we're lucky. And I sort of had one moment where all the stars aligned with the reunion of that piece and everything going on where I really just tried to sit down and make it a true reflection of how I felt in my head. And this was also, you know, there were no real pieces on this guy. You find a yearbook or something and there's 40 words about how he's a business major from Indianapolis. And that's the end of it. Well, the story dies with me. If I don't put it out there in the ether, no one will know. And I don't really care about numbers or engagements or clicks, but I got to make sure at least one other person can find this when I can't tell the story anymore. And, you know, it, it sounds, I, again, Midwest, it sounds pretentious to me to tell such like a deep and heavy story. But when you can and you have the ability and it's all there, you got to you absolutely got to tell what the story is. I think you did a fantastic job with it. And it's interesting to me because after reading that piece and then reading your later writing, in a certain sense, when you mention your father in your later writing, the way I put it in my head is you're invoking your father to evoke a specific sense of sort of small town Indiana, that uh, humble mindset, that hardworking, put in your work, do a great job attitude, almost like your writing version of John Cougar talking about Jack and Diane. I'll take that. I'll take that. You know, part of my dad's lore that I was big on is that, you know, he didn't have a YMCA membership or play on an AAU travel team or any of the things that we associate with modern ball. He lived next to a fire department and he played pickup games with folks between runs. That's just what you got to do. And there's something really romantic to me about that genuine life. Not that there's anything ingenuine about the experiences of AAU or health clubs, etc., but when your only ability to play ball just comes from the firefighters aren't saving anyone's lives right now and they have 20 minutes to play horse, go do that. And, you know, that's, that's to me, that's what growing up in rural Indiana is about. Let's talk about professional wrestling. Absolutely. Jeff, I know you're a big fan of the squared circle. First and foremost, I got to ask any wrestling fan, one favorite wrestler of all time and favorite wrestling moment? Okay. Two great questions. And I will try and put these in a reasonable frame for the, the listener that is not into pro graps or pro wrestling or pro or any of the nicknames it has. 
the very first wrestler I ever fell in love with. And matter of factly, it was the first media figure that told me that authority should be questioned and that you are best when you are yourself was a gentleman named Stone Cold Steve Austin in the 90s. And Ooh. there was a real push at the time, speaking of my parents, where they did not like that I was getting involved with this guy, this bald-headed, middle-finger-throwing, beer-drinking SOB. Uh, but he was the first guy, even at age seven, to tell me, this life thing is not what people tell you. Check it out. Get a lawyer. See something different. So he was always my favorite. In terms of all-time best wrestling memories, uh, I'm going to try and give it like a big wide swath. But like I, I loved wrestling as a kid and a teenager, but my parents, like a lot of other Midwestern parents, were like, no, thank you. We're not buying as many pay-per-views as you'd like. We're not letting you get this close to effectively NC-17 programming. Uh, you're going to have to wait till you're an adult to do that. But around the time I was like, graduating high school and still like pretty much every year I get together with friends for WrestleManias at one of their houses or a restaurant or something. We do our own thing, but WrestleMania 30, there was a big payoff moment where everyone in the room really, really enjoyed Daniel Bryan. He won at WrestleMania in the main event beating both uh, Dave Batista and Triple H against long, long, long odds. But it really kind of had this big generational moment where all of my friends and I that had grown up being told no, or this isn't for you, or you don't get a say in the matter, where an independent, vegan, hipster wrestler, it's kind of not promising in physique, beats two of Hollywood's biggest stars because the time is right for him. And everyone in that room kind of had this moment where it's like, yes, yes, this is our wrestling moment. This is the generational nod of the kids are all right. And that happened around 2014. But since then, I've been a lifer. I've been off and on and off and on for years, depending on whether I felt like it or my parents had a TV in my room at the time. But at that moment, I knew it's like, this is what I've waited for. This is the good stuff. And great times are better. I am a late convert to wrestling. Still, honestly, more entrenched in the heyday of the big WWF more than anything yeah. else. That was a wild time with things like the WCW, the NWO, and so many other groups. Yeah. Hands down, my favorite moment, Booker T versus Stone Cold Steve Austin, the famous supermarket fight. <laughs> uh, so good. Absolutely absurd. It is available on YouTube for anyone interested. And to be honest, part of the reason why I actually bring up wrestling is because I find it so interesting as a narrative and media device. It took a long time for me to understand that it is one part circus performance and one part soap opera. Yeah. I think a lot of people struggle to put it into that perspective. And I'm not sure if you got the opportunity to read an article that I provided you called Is Everything Wrestling from the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and for our listeners, it is a May 2016 article where author Jeremy Gordon posited during the height of the Republican presidential primary that Donald Trump was capitalizing on a new trend similar to that of other big celebrities that led the idea of fictional storytelling 
with page six gossip columns, the narrative of these rumors and backroom deals and who's on whose side. And in the same way, like Beyonce giving shade to Jay-Z in Lemonade, Donald Trump somehow made the presidential primary more a wrestling match. Do you think that modern media and particularly social media has created an environment that incentivizes this type of like heightened storytelling that's in a way campy or melodramatic to almost create these face and heel roles in our narrative? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think it can even be a bit simpler, but before we get going, let's just show call a spade a spade and say that Donald Trump is a member of the WWE Hall of Fame and hosted not one but two WrestleManias at Trump Plaza. So we can be very, very familiar in saying that he knows what this term kayfabe is. And to explain it to the folks at home simply, it just means always a suspension of disbelief, a character. If you were to see the Lone Ranger out shopping for groceries... Yeah, if you ask where's Tonto, he'd be like, oh, he's in the parking lot because he can't just – that's the life's work is you can't let down the persona. So that's it. You can't let down the persona, and I can't say it's not so much that as it is the truth is a carefully wrapped package at all times. And we live in a time, say, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, everything, phones everywhere. Something happens in 10 minutes, it's global. We have – in a very good way, if you want to look at it realistically, a very tight microscope on being able to figure out the truth about anything. So what's the biggest weapon to that? People who can sustain a character large enough, convincing enough, unbelievable enough, captivating enough, hell, ironically angering enough to get you to pay attention People will focus on that and the conflict of the disbelief being there more than they will what's fact. Hmm. And it's weird to me when people tell me, I, I, you know, I watch, I'd say I watch wrestling. Don't you know it's fake? I'm like, I'm sorry. Um, I don't tell you this about Shakespeare. I don't tell you this about Doctor Who. I uh, especially do not tell you this about a lot of uh, the marketing campaigns you see on TV. There is very much a look at my right hand while the left hand picks your pocket in modern media and it is something i think a lot of folks will recognize very tacitly i don't have to point to anything to say but when it comes to wrestling and is everything wrestling we now live in an era where the truth is hyper quick and omnipresent and the only way to combat that is from the get-go being able to be more interesting than the truth and that's something i've learned from a lot of pro wrestlers and, you know, I, I describe it a lot as America's last lost art form. It's part drag, part burlesque, part, as I said, Shakespeare. It's punch ballet. But a lot of these folks still in, involved in wrestling, at least, are effectively carnies. And, you know, there's a saying, don't meet your heroes, you won't like what you see. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot of lesson to be learned in putting up this lifelong persona, this ability to control the narrative when it could be so easily put against you in objective terms that that's not the case. Well, but I'm bigger than that. I'm me. Thank you so much. Jeff Lefebvre, former HT journalist. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.